0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the New Books Now Network podcast. I'm Matthew Gagne, and today I'm speaking with Omar Kasmani, a cultural anthropologist at Free University in Berlin, about his new book entitled Queer Companions, Religion, Public Intimacy, and Saintly Affects in Pakistan, recently published by Duke University Press. Welcome, Omar. It's nice to have you here today. It's nice to
2: be here, Matthew.
1: Now, in the book, you theorize saintly intimacy and particularly what you call unstraight affordances as a set of queer social relationships between aesthetics and saintly authorities known as fakirs, uh, a 13th century uh, saint and their shrines in Sehwan, one of Pakistan's most important sites of Sufi pilgrimage. Now, what's really interesting to me about the text is the way that you can join um, threads within queer theory um, and the anthropology of Islam to outline the felt and enfleshed ways in which saintly affections bind individuals, society, and the state in Pakistan through a public architecture of intimacy. Um, and in the book you sort of, you characterize these Islamic saints and their and the fakir's relationship to them through this sort of through this frame of being lovers and queer companions um, as a religious universe is made um, valuable to critical and queer forms of thinking And so before we begin I just want to give a little caveat to the listeners um, is that, My inroad into your work, as you know uh, from having been introduced to you a few years ago, is through our shared interest in queer theory, um, questions of intimacy, uh, and these public and social infrastructures that allow these intimate life worlds to flourish. And so as we move forward through the questions and through our conversation, I just want listeners to be aware that um, uh, the questions are going to focus a little bit more on our overlapping interests in these topics, as opposed to um, your intervention, the interventions that you make into um, topics around religion, Sufism, and the anthropology of Islam, uh, because those just aren't my specialty. So I just want people to be aware that we're going to be weaving through questions of queer theory, intimacy, um, uh, as opposed to Uh, those questions you raise and those answers you give around um, the anthropology of Islam. Uh, And so the first question I have for you is just to help set the stage and tell me a little bit about the story of your book. Um, And so this, I mean, this question sort of as a behind the scenes kinds of um, uh, tale, you know, what made you write it? How did you come to focus on the topic?
2: Thank you, Matthew. Thank you also for the very generous introduction to the book. Uh, I'm really really glad that you're interested and that you're engaging with this material. Um, In terms of the the story of the book, I I would say the shorter and straightforward story or the version would be that when I arrived in Seyvan to do research for my MA thesis back in 2009, and this was a cultural studies program, um, I came across two women at the shrine who were both fakirs. And this was rather, you know, really by chance. Amma and Zahida, you know, these, uh, well, these women would eventually become key protagonists in, in Queer Companions, um, and their stories are illustrated in chapters two and three of the book, as you know. Um, for the benefit of uh, our listeners, I, I should first explain that fakirs are one among uh, many kinds of ascetics in the South Asian Sufi tradition. And in my book, uh, these are individuals, um, women, men, but also gender-variant persons who abandon home, question inherited lines, um, uh, project reproductive economies of family and work, um, or forego them uh, simply in order to be closer to saints and their shrines in Pakistan. And many of these individuals whom I've worked with over the years, performers, healers, and spiritual guides um, in the shrine and in the town, um, and serve other believers, so to speak, and, and pilgrims. Um, at the time, in 2009, I was interested in understanding uh, religious shrines through the extra-devotional dimensions, let's say. I mean, questions that exceeded ideas of piety, the making of ethical subjectivities, or even, you know, debates around this or that kind of Islam, this or that kind of Muslims. And Fakir figures like uh, these two women and their um, variously, let's say, unfolding lives over the years have kept me hooked uh, to the place, and I, I stayed longer than I, I'd have imagined um, and it is through, you know, let's say my decade-long encounters with such lives that the book *Queer Companions* has really taken shape. I certainly did not arrive in seven with the aim of writing uh, *Fakir* life stories or to undertake a project on, on queerness, so to speak. Um, though I have to say that I was reading a *Queer Phenomenology* at the time by Sara Ahmed, so that certainly has has shaped um, certain uh, some of the trajectories of the work, and I think some of those traces are there in the introduction. Uh, When I discuss lines and orientations to saints. But then there's also an unstraight story, a slightly more messier one. Um, This was also the time, uh, because you talked about the backstory, um, so to speak. So, this was the front story which I gave you. The backstory really is, and which is something I think I've only come to understand in retrospect. Um, This was also the time when I had quit a five year career in architecture. I was questioning. Uh, my long term relationship. I was also finding my way to the social sciences. So I was moving from architecture to cultural studies, eventually to anthropology. Um, so, in a sense, life, work, faith, sexuality, especially things I knew or as I knew them were thrown up in the air. Um, and to have encountered a world as uh, plurally conceived as Sevan as it comes through the book, at least, I hope so. And that to um, sort of so up close was simply um, life altering. I don't think I could have known uh, all of this back then. Um, but in, in the first sort of, you know, in the first sort of, I would say, as my first impression, I would say that it was taken by um, the deeply affective religious, uh, or the deeply affective forms religious life took, or as was in the case of the the emotionally messy ways in which such figures tied themselves up in relations with saints and their uh, numerous shrines in Sevan. Um, and I think it's also what was also remarkable, and this is something I came to understand rather gradually, and I think this again ties up to um, Sarah Ahmad's work is that people's relations with a religious object, um, be it a saintly figure or a sacred place, um, afforded them kind of, you know, some kind of uh, possibilities to wear off the straight, so to speak, you know, in very broad terms, to make less normative choices about their futures, what I describe as unstraight affordances of intimacy. And this, of course, is tied to the idea uh, in the book, which you mentioned that Islamic saints are lovers of some kind, you know, companions are known to uh, return such unstraight affections of Fakirs, but also of other believers. But in a sense, what, what really started happening was, I think over the years, Fakir lives that I was encountering and then, you know, eventually writing about, um, helped me make sense of my own wayfaring against um, settled relationships, work, and faith. Um, it's, a, it's a very long-winded way of uh, telling you or, or the listeners that ideas of intimacy and queerness that I center in the book, um, that is people's affective means of questioning life's inheritances through modes of coming close to saints and their shrines, uh, are somehow also a response to my own distance uh, to places like seven. And some of the, some of that um, gets conveyed in the introduction where I talk about my family's religious inheritance and how I negotiate that distance. Um, or to, to, you know, cast the bigger story of the book through a personal um, narrative. Um, so, in a sense, the uh, the book's key question, really, uh, which is what unfolds or takes hold as individuals draw near to the saintly, um, is in part also answered by uh, my own story of coming close or going astray, uh,
1: however you want to see it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah that's um, I wanted to get at that personal element with that question because I think we all end up having some sort of personal interest or personal backstory that carries us toward our own research um, topics and the way that you frame your study um, I I get the impression is also so deeply interwoven with um, you know, uh, questions or interests in other aspects of your life, right? So, I'm glad I'm glad you sort of brought in that backstory because that's that's sort of what I was curious about, um, because not many people, not many. I'm sure there's not many scholars out there who. Um, would bring in that queer lens, that uh, you know, that idea of unstraight affordances to a study like this, unless they had, you know, personal slash intellectual stakes in in these multiple kinds of questions, and especially because I know that through your other work, um, you know, in Berlin and on, um, you know, migrant lives and intimate lives and queer lives in Berlin, that these questions really span. Um, span your work in very, you know, multiple different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so who was the imagined audience then for such a sort of, uh, you, know, um, you know, multiple text? And, and how do you want them to relate to the book?
2: Yeah, that's a harder question to answer, I would say. Um, I mean, one, I don't know if I ever imagined a concrete kind of, um, set of people, uh, other than of course you know that certain kinds of academics would be reading the book, you know that one knows that a book like that would be of interest to scholars of you know South Asian studies or of Islamic studies, but at the same time I knew that my book um, didn't rather, I mean couldn't sit in, in those conversations somehow, um, and this also, also the personal dimension you mentioned which brought a queer angle to it was something that really gradually accrued over time, so over the years as I, and it's a long, it's a long project, 10 years almost. And, and so the tempo, temporality of life, not just of for case, but also your own life, right? So some of the things that I've now told you as a backstory, I wouldn't have been able to sort of, you know, articulate it in those terms. So I certainly didn't go to say one with this aim that this is where I will, you know, <laughs> be able to find answers to my life or something or to the crisis that I was going through. Um, um, so I don't think I, it, yeah, but I, just to sort of, um, I mean, I knew that there would be a struggle to bridge the, the readers that I'm interested in bringing to the book. And I think I was rather conscious of that, at least when I started writing the book. So research, of course, is another story, doing work in the field and, you know, collecting those lives and whatever that material you have. But I think once you start giving it shape and form, you know, and you think about, okay, what does the introduction need to do? And, and I, through, my, through, through the readers of the book, as in the reviewers also, I realized that I needed to kind of create a bridge for readers who were coming from Islamic studies who wouldn't have read uh, much on queer theory. How do I, how do I get them interested and how, how do I get them sort of on the same page as, um, you know, hopefully scholars from queer studies who wouldn't pick up a book in Pakistan or wouldn't be interested in reading anything about shrines and those kinds of things. So rather than, I think, yeah, so I think the imagined audience was an audience that would um, span uh, this divide, let's say, between the anthropology of Islam and, um, yeah, and and quite very.
1: Okay. So how... Um can you tell me a little bit then about how you make the how you made those bridges in the text like what was what do you think is the thing about the way you use something like queer theory that would hook uh, a scholar of Islam or a scholar of Sufism
2: Um I mean part of it of course I think uh, um or one of the key things um I had to make sure of was that I wasn't um that I wasn't um, using using queer as a way to uh, simplify something, let's say, right, or to or what I call queer jacketing, right, to sort of tailoring it to a cut and to say, well, you know, this is also queer. Uh, look, Pakistan is also queer. Look, Islam is also queer. That kind of a, um, and I and I'm very yeah. I think that that's something I'm very conscious about, and I and I say that rather. Um, emphatically in the book, both in the, inter- in, in the introduction and the quarter to the book, that this is not about queering Islam or Islamizing queer, but I'm interested in thinking about queer in its kind of broader, um, yeah, um, as a way of thinking. How, how do we think through religious affect, sacred aesthetics, and, and think about um, broader ways of you know, living um, a queer life? Um, what are the other possibilities of queer and it's not a—it's not only to um, get Islamic studies people interested, I think this is also my own interest in queer theory as to sort of think in more than sexual terms and not this doesn't mean excluding sexuality because I think if you look at the ways in which I write about these lives or the lives that I write about um, their relations with saints also have an impact on the ways in which they live their sexuality, they might not be sort of you know modern queer LGBT identities. this is a, this is certainly not a book about LGBTQI Muslims right? Um, but what it also allows us to do is then to refuse a certain kind of minoritization of queer minor, minoritization of, of Pakistan as well. so you know uh, so this is queer only really becomes relevant when it's about LGBTQ lives or sexuality um, because one of the questions I think one of the readers of the, the reviewers also asked why do we need this lens? Why not think through sexuality or gender, which is slightly more established in Islamic studies. Um, so I think that is a challenge. And then you have to sort of bring that in, in a way that allows other people to also, um, yeah, sort of feel that, okay, this is the, this is the larger um, idea here. Um, and I don't know how successful this has been, but um, that was a challenge.
1: I mean, in many ways, like uh, what I really appreciate about your use of queer is specifically um, that treatment of it as not just uh, having to examine a minor, minor minoritarian experience right it's not just about the non normative but it can even be about um, like you say those unstraight affordances which at themselves might be a divergence from sort of a certain path of life but that doesn't mean that the path that the unstraight path is also becomes suddenly a minoritarian path right in many ways what you're looking for looking at are these wider infrastructures and histories um, um that have produced these other kinds of paths that the fakirs have gone on without without having to sort of tr- treat it in a certain queer way um or without having to to deny the fact that at the same time these unstraight affordances can become quite normalized and quite ordinary um and and quite very much about the everyday
2: yeah i mean there's also sort of you know um um, there's also this interest on a sort of at least I, I, I was trying to explore this interest of how do we read um, these forms of unstraightness that we see in religious life worlds without making them uh, without yeah without sort of you know uh, forcing them uh, into this queer cut um, so to speak. I don't know whether you know Amira Mittemeyer's work, um, um, you know, so she has this wonderful line in one of her texts, and of course she writes about Islamic saints and and their shrines in Cairo, in contemporary Cairo. She has this wonderful line uh, where she writes, um, shrines break the order of straight lines. You know, and for her, saints places with their concentric circles of sacred affect, but also as doorways to other realms, right? She's interested in this relationship between here and what she calls in elsewhere. Um, and she talks about how these excite and uphold a nonlinear spatial arrangement which runs counter uh to um, the the order of modernity let's say the spatial order of modernity um so I think those those are kinds of you know the um, mm-hmm. kind of insights or thoughts or lines that you can run with and say okay yeah but there is there is there is value in thinking like that you know um and uh, there's another um Ethnography by Anand Taneja uh, on the Sinhi Ecologies of Delhi. It's, the book is called Genealogy. Um, and that too, uh, there's a certain kind of unstraightness that prevails, uh, questions of you know ecological ecological questions. Um, and, and he describes how saints, but also the, not just saints, but also the co-presence of Islamic jinns, Hindu deities, um, anonymous spirits, talking animals—you know, these are figures that disrupt neat conceptions of historical time and religious belonging in post-colonial India. So, in a way, when when I describe um, Islamic saints as queer companions, it's not mere provocation. You know, it sort of—it's—it's—it's it's, it's to bring home the point, the greater point that affective intimacies with such kinds of saintly beings and sort of you know figures and places—they bear affordances that include departures from sort of established religious lines, but also social norms. You know, it's more than religion in a way, which I call, you know, the, in the book they describe as unstraight affordances. Um, but I, I think what uh, what is also important to, um, and I think it's also of value for Islamic uh, scholars of Islam, um, that these kinds of, you know, the, the religious deviants, I talk about the unstraight modes of piety or the crooked orientations to the social are part of the ways in which Muslim mystics have historically sort of expressed their, their relations to the divine. Um, and it's also how a certain kind of unstraightness coheres in the present. Um, so what I'm trying to basically do is, is chart that, that you know, that unstraithness across realms of the divine, the mundane, in, and, and to my interest, also the queer. So I, I, what I'm trying to say in the book, at least, is that uh, enshrined holy figures like the saint in sevan, but also other kinds of figures, bear the capacity to alter our relations with history and our belonging in time and they because they preserve possibilities of staying temporally Islamed to the contemporary, right? Through through religious means. Uh, and that to me, um, that to me is is interesting. Um, it's also true in a way that before I found companions in queer and affect theory thinking about religion, it's in Fakir company and in Sevan that I encountered a mode of queerness that was tied to a non-metropolitan, more than secular ecology, right? Um, so in that sense, it's not, I don't feel that it's an imposition. It's not, it's not something that I bring, you know, with this, I, I don't have this interest of reading Islamic worlds queerly, right? So it's not, as I said, it's not a queering project. Um, it's it's this, this idea of, of reading uh, or thinking queer religiously um, that I write about in the Coda is about exploring whether queer theorizing can find other lives, right? In the epistemological reserves and, and the affective resources that religious ecologies uh, make available to us. I mean, wh- what does it mean to think through an intellectual universe which is ready and ripe with sac- sacred aesthetics and religious affect, but does not usually strike us as sites of, you know, for queer thinking and world making? So those are the, the dynamics that sort of, I think, shape the book.
1: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it's not that you don't deal with issues or with topics that have been sort of have been inherent to queer theory, such as sexuality. I mean, you have a, a chapter where you talk about um, a fakir who... Uh, who abandons his, his place and abandons his celibacy and falls in love with a woman. And you examine questions uh, and and tensions um, among them around that question of celibacy and intimacy um, and sexuality. Uh, You across two or three chapters, you examine gender um, and uh, particularly the sexual relationship between a fakir and her husband or her partner. You have a, a sec, uh, you have one interlocutor, Baba, who, you know, identifies as they. So the, anyway, the point I'm trying to get at is that there's topics there that are inherent to queer theorization, particularly in Western academia, but you don't focus on it as that sort of a priori, this is where queerness exists, this is where it sort of, it, it's it, it stems from. Um, and so I appreciated that a lot about the text.
2: Thank you. Yeah, that, that's that's a good observation. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so another one of your, um, sort of interventions or main discussions that, that sort of really got me excited was, uh, your focus on intimacy. It's, again, this is definitely a shared interest between you and I, um, and, uh, I think it. I think it's so novel. Again, as someone who actually doesn't have that much uh, background in sort of the anthropology of Islam and saints and Sufis, I do find it such a novel frame to think to to sort of write through. Um, and have an entire ethnography that basically is an account of how fakirs constructed that proximity or that close closeness to these you know 13th century saints and and what kind of possibilities became inherent within the sort of material social world and i'm curious like was that a frame that um like where did that where did that frame come from like is there a moment where you know, or an experience or a story where you were like, hmm, maybe this needs to be talked about through closeness and proximity and attachment?
2: Um There is, uh, it's interesting because I don't think there is a, there was a, there was an argument uh, with a fellow anthropologist and a friend of mine, Delphine, who makes re- return appearances in the book and I write about that argument, slight argument in, in the acknowledgements to the book, but it doesn't here in the in the chapters I remember having this discussion once in the field that I think that there is something about intimacy that needs to be explored here and, uh, and my friend didn't agree at all and we had a huge argument and a very heated argument about how no intimacy is purely sexual and you know those kinds of you know uh, or that it has to involve those kinds of things and it doesn't work and somehow I think I'd sort of not forgotten about it but I'd sort of left it there let's say and I returned to it years after um and I think somehow via my work on Berlin so there is something and then sort of and it's also because I started working with these group of wonderful scholars in Berlin you know in the center affect of society so affect became something that I was really um you know I was getting more and more involved with and so returning to the material, but also returning to the field at some point to to uh, think about how to write the book, um, I somehow returned to the concept, um, and I found it really generative. Uh, and it's no, I think it's not a surprise for anyone who's read anything on Sufis or, uh, or, you know, I because I think it's a it's a concept which is present. It's a concept which is present. It's been written about. Um, maybe not in, through the square lens and all of those kinds of things, but it's not such a novel thing to think about um, intimacy and and um, relations um, or, or saintly or relations with the divine, for example. It lends itself rather well, I think. Um, but yes, I think. It, it, but 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 when you, I think, the ways in which I write about intimacy, um, also in my greater and newer work on Berlin, which you're familiar with it's something that is tied with ideas of temporality. It's something that unfolds over time. Um, and at the very onset in the book, I call it an unfolding, a disclosure, right? An elaboration, in fact. So um, it's it's how I wish to think about intimate relations. It's, it's about how these endure over time, how these transform, unravel, but also how intimacy orients us to certain kinds of beings becoming futurities. Um, so this tying of... Intimacy and futurity is something that, you know, happens, I think, in the book. Um, and I think through the Urdu word qareeb, or which comes from Arabic, of course, um, and in the introduction, I point to how being close is akin to uh, being on the verge of something, being on the verge of completion, you know, on the brink of understanding, even um, how being near is also being nearly there kind of a thing. So there is this idea of the impending, which I'm interested in. Uh, because I think what I'm trying to to say through uh, this lens of intimacy, or to by thinking by way of the intimate, is that um, intimacy, whether it's with saints or otherwise, is it's 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 a thing which is folded with potentials and possibilities, and irrespective of whether or not um, these come to fruition, whether these are lost, whether they're realized or not, uh, they always have this kind of um, element of the impending. Uh, this this this. Um, perspective or this outlook towards the future and that's also what sort of uh, becomes interesting in sort of charting this through fakir lives as they unfold over this decade long time that I've been able to follow their lives um what all it involves or uh, and this is i mean you were pointing to a fakir who who falls in love uh, at some point and you know ends up uh giving up his place in the fakir lodge or uh, or a woman who um, Zahida, who starts off as a rather stable fakir, but you know finds herself in in a place of crisis and cannot sort of really find her bearings at some point. Um, so these are these are things that you can only observe over time when you when you follow lives uh, lives have a way of unfolding, right? Um, so intimacy here becomes that lens you can see. Um, that saints too can sometimes stop fording things that they once promised right these are reciprocal relations uh, and they can go sour at any time uh, So, it becomes this sort of
1: way of also thinking about lives as they unfold in, these, in, in this in the setting hmm yeah, definitely your um, your conversation about intimacy and futurity and, and the vocabulary you use was a moment in my experience reading where I was like, yes, yes, I totally agree. Because, you know, even... In, it, It's definitely something that um, comes out in my ethnographic data from Queer Men in Beirut, where it's like the the intimate is something that people desire because there's like a promise of something else or something different or something new um, within it, right? Um, And so I thought that that was like a novel, you know, the relationship between intimacy and futurity isn't often um, um, discussed in, in, in the foreground um uh as that thing that sort of drives someone's desire for intimate you know new kinds of intimate relationships um yeah but so i wanted to ask then um i wanted to make that jump between um intimacy through the individual relationships and ask how it is um that you see, like, what are the implications that you write about of saintly intimacies upon wider social and political relations in Pakistan? Because as you write, acts of embracing saints exceed the intimacy between two individuals, but are, quote, political moves with ethical stakes whose implications far exceed a singular scene of intimacy. So I was hoping you could outline a couple of the ways that these, you know, singular or individual intimacies have implications. Um, more broadly?
2: Yeah, I mean, of course, um, I think one of the things that comes rather uh, easily when we think about intimacy is the inward dimension of it, right? The, what we feel, you know, um, how, we, how we belong in a relationship and all those kinds of things. We always tend to think sort of, you know, in somehow intimate tri- is a synonym for private. And, and what I'm interested in to think about public intimacy or the modes through which it becomes a public question, a public genre, um, and I think Fakir lives um, in a place like Sevan allow us to think in these broader sort of uh, frames. Um, and for that, you know, one also has to understand what Sevan is and what what its place in Pakistani society is, right? Um, so this might be a slightly longer answer, but I think just to first of all to say that uh, Fakir lives provide that 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 interesting threat because we are talking about individuals who are devoted to a saint who has a public and a a, a national presence and a lot of these lives are unfolding in in settings like shrines which are are managed or administered by the Pakistani state since the 1960s. So these are are public endowments, these are public institutions. So state patronage is uh, integral to the ways in which uh, saints become these big figures in Pakistan since the 1960s, and I write a lot about that in the first chapter of the book, uh, the "Infrastructures of the Imaginal," where I write about um, this child uh, Baba who eventually becomes Baba, um, who whose dreams actually pull them from their from their village and you know uh, takes them to various shrines in the country, and, and you know they travel with fakirs and they end up. In seven, so they're really drawn to a figure that they see in a dream. But I try to argue, I try to construct how that dream is also part of the, the saintly infrastructures through which the state, you know, creates a certain um, sense of, of of the saintliness. Uh, and the state's motivations are really complex. And you know, part of it is uh, generating revenue from these shrines. Part of it is secularization of the of the public in the 1960s, at least, that's the early uh, kind of uh, project of the state, but then also of sort of, you know, um, propagating, let's say, um, the state's version of Islam. Um, But all of this is sort of, you know, so there there are ways in which people's intimacies and people's affective relations with a a singular saintly figure can almost sort of, you know, can sort of, you know, tell you la- a larger story. And that's what I'm trying to, to do with this project. Um, I don't know if, if we should talk about uh, also seven as a location, because um, maybe for listeners, because it's it's a, it's a really special kind of a place. I don't want to call it extraordinary because I think it is extraordinary in some ways, um, but it's also part of a larger landscape of how, you know, these, these kinds of places form the warp and weft of Pakistani society. Um, seven, as I often like to describe and I also write in the book, is Pakistan at its complex best. Yeah. It's, I think that's a, the simplest way to talk about it. It's a formerly Shivite and now Sufi site of pilgrimage on the River Indus. So these are sort of really facts. Um, but also it's a place where old world deities and demons crossfade with their Islamic contemporaries, right? So they become like almost sometimes hard to uh, separate, you know, unentangle it is home to the shrine of Pakistan's most beloved uh, figure of devotion. Uh, his name is Lal Shah Bas And he's a figure who straddles multiple histories and identities. He's also remembered in as many guises. Um, so to some, he's an ancient, he's, you know, he, he's sort of a remnant of this ancient river deity who rode on fish. Uh, he's a Shi'i proselytizer who arrived in India in the 13th century. He's an awaited reincarnate for his Hindu followers uh, and he's a wandering Antinomian Sufi uh, who rose to the skies in the form of falcon, and that's like a—that's the image of the saint, also you know, the miracle of the saint and as a falcon. That's why he's called Shabaz, and it's also a very sticky figure. It's still—it's a sticky image, yeah. um, both in terms of legend, song, and image. Um, so basically, we're talking about uh, a, a devotional map which is quite dense in sacred terms. Yeah? It's a place which is dotted with shrines uh, of all manner. Uh, and many of which are sites of burial um, and sacrality, uh in this place is also a, a question of landscape so freshwater springs and and streams and hills and caves and sites associated with the saint's memory or his visits um, they all become you know part of how uh, the landscape is revered um, but also sort of inhabited today. The shrine is at the center of all devotional action but as you can see in the chapters, the book also ventures beyond it, but because there are other sites um, where Fakirs are living, there, it begins in a grove outside town, which is a site associated with the saint's memory. The some of the chap- two chapters are set at the shrine itself: one in the um, in the, the tomb hall, um, which is called the Darbar, and one in the courtyard. Um, then there is a, a chapter which is set in a in a Fakir lodge, which is an all male um, sort of setting or a commune for Fakirs, and then there's a graveyard, which is on the outskirts of the northern tip of the of the city. So in a way, this is also, you know, this kind of, um, yeah, it's this kind of a devotional pilgrimage town. Um, but what is interesting here, I think, I think what needs to be um, understood is that nowhere in Pakistan is the sacred as unstraight as it is in Sewan. right? So the, the the historical narrations that I just listed about the saint himself, uh, these, are, these are narrations that do not and cannot sit straight with, uh, with the Pakistani state's desire for and its, its, uh, its attempts at creating singular or exclusive Islamic pasts in a post-colonial Muslim kind of, you know, nation. So the, the kind of historical complexity that we're talking about or this kind of sacred density uh, becomes, uh, you know, part of the ways in which then one is able to think about queerness in this broad, uh, yeah in a, in, a, in a broad frame
0: um, i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off, and and then
2: yeah. So so this politics and the, the reason I'm also talking about all of this is to think about uh, not just for key lives but the setting in which it unfolds and the larger dynamics which are rather political. So it ties uh, what it allows the place of Sevan. The reason I'm describing Sevan in such detail is that for key lives in this town enable us actually to think through very inward modes of intimacy to things that are rather sort of national, the political on a national level. So of course, there's politics of intimacy. Um, so in a way, the, one of the arguments I make uh, through especially Baba's chapter, the first chapter um, infrastructures of the imaginer, is that in drawing near to, the, to such saintly figures, uh, fakirs also, also draw near to the state, uh, because they become part of this larger project of the state, so it's also a kind of a coming close to the state or an intimacy with the state. And That's why I call
1: it this—you um, know—this public uh, architecture of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so going back to that, because um, um, you do have these fasci- fascinating discussions in a couple of chapters where you really look at the history of the the site vis-à-vis. Um, questions of power and control, right? And you look at that transition where the site is being controlled by a particular family to when the state takes it over and, and starts sort of a playing with what takes shape there. Um, um, and I guess this also, the, the, your conversation around unstraight affordances um, can be asked similar to my question around intimacy, is that we can we can think about unstraight affordances vis-a-vis an individual and their life path and their sort of desires and intentions. Um, But I guess I'm curious going back to that question about these social and political infrastructures of intimacy, um, how, how do they or how have they like these questions of power and history of the site shaped um, these unstraight affordances
2: So if I if I understand your question correctly, um, I mean I would I would think that um, I would think that for example uh, women's access uh, to to um, this form of of being close to saints, so women's access to fakir lives. Uh, my understanding is uh, that it has been advanced by um, the the states. Intervention into shrines. So uh, these, of course, until the 1960s, especially this shrine until 1960, was um, controlled by a particular family, or some of the services were shared across uh, elite families of Sevan. Um, these are elite in the sense that, uh, of course, they're moneyed people, but also um, they, are, um, they claim spiritual authority either by being the first disciples of the saint or by being descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. So they're sayyids, and they have a particular kind of um, spiritual authority unlike anyone else, right? So in a way, Fakirs are also, um, if not in competition, they are sort of, you know, at least, you know, they, they would be valued in relation to this kind of uh, spiritual authority. And they understand that their own access to charisma or the saint's authority is distinct from these kinds of figures, um, and I think that um, there is a certain kind of limited public democratization of these spaces through the presence of the state, because what the state does is when it arrives there, it it reconfigures those relationships. It doesn't. It it does unseat the sayeds, but it doesn't remove them completely because it it has certain kinds of alliances, right, uh, through which certain sacred ceremonies and annual ceremonies are held, and so they have some kind of a they maintained some kind of a role. But at the same time, it it opens up the shrine to uh, women like uh, Zahida and Amma, who can only become uh, these kinds of figures under the umbrella of the state, in a way. Uh, and also the shrine becomes a, a site of um, public uh, revenue-making, which all the revenues were, were you know going to those, those families at some point, or until the 1960s. So the ways in which I think the larger politics shapes uh, what is what is possible for certain figures, and I think for non-male uh, publics, for unconventional publics, for, for transgender individuals, for gender varying, for kids, for women, um, it does have a it does have a real impact. Um, of the kind so able to make. Sorry,
1: yeah, yeah. No, I was just going to say, I um, what I find sort of a realization I'm having here, and maybe it's a bit obvious, is just that when you talk about unstraight affordances and you use queer theory to to describe these kinds of histories, you're not making a distinction between sort of the normative and the non-normative, because perhaps what I'm trying to sort of get at is the idea that even the intervention of the state into this site can itself create, you know, unstraight affordances through enabling possibilities for people who did not previously have those possibilities, but in queer theory, we wouldn't normally associate state intervention as, you know, a queerness, as a form of queerness, right. As a, as a form of sort of non-normativity or, or, um, or, um, and so I guess that's my own, you know, my own bias being seeped within, you know, and Western queer, theory discourse and what you're trying to do by showing by applying queerness to other kinds of worlds perhaps i'm wrong but what i find interesting is base is basically that you're saying that the state can intervene and produce unstraight affordances but we don't need to you know it doesn't need to be a distinction between normative and non-normative
2: what i'm also saying is i think in the book is that some of these um state interventions or the outcomes of you know what what this they're also inadvertent, right? So they're not necessarily intended by the state. So some of the things are also out, so they're kind of unpredictable outcomes. Um, I also talk about how um, it's a queer site also because it's a formerly Shivite place, um, which is which has an ascending Shi'i following under a sort of rather Sunni sort of Islamic state. So it has these things that are sort of, you know, it has. it is full of paradoxes in some ways. So I don't think that the state is always, that I'm not trying to say that the state is a, a queer partner, so to speak, yeah. right? Um, but there, there, it, it it's simply governance in the ways in which it takes shape in Pakistan um, allows for sometimes a queer surplus, let's say, and this could be accidental. Um, and, and there are ways in which I think queer... Uh, modes can thrive, uh, limitedly so, contingently so, um, but it's part of this larger sort of you know, queerness that I'm talking about, um, which is sort of, you know, it's, it's a kind of an unresolved, kind of a shifting ground of multiple plural histories, uh, you know, plural ideas of the divine. And these are all at odds with the state's own agenda. Or the state's own narrative, so it doesn't sit straight with the, what what the state wants, um, or what the, the narration of the state, and yet it's a place that's thriving, yeah. And I think that is what is interesting about it
1: uh, more than anything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, can you? Uh, can you tell me a little bit, you, you mentioned Zaheda and Amma, can you tell me a little bit about how gender um, fits into the narrative, the, the narrative of the text, and how gender distinguishes, like operates to distinguish fakir lives?
2: I think one of the ways in which I would say, uh, if I were to give one example, uh, and maybe yeah to go back to Zahida and Amma's life stories, um, I think both chapters—one uh, is set in the in the shrine hall, where the, uh, in the presence of the saint's tomb in the ba—and the other one is set in the saint's courtyard uh, where Zahida is, and both these chapters reveal in a sense, I think um, how the narrativization of endurance um, healing narratives, but also suffering becomes integral to the ways in which a female religious authority is established at shrines in Pakistan or in Sevan in particular. And it's, it's almost um, kind of impossible to separate, you know, this, this narrativization of mystical experience from the fact that it is through such performances that, um, that women are able to find access to a public life. So by claiming that they're fakirs, by claiming that they are women unlike women, by claiming that they are close to the saint, they're able to um, hold an audience in a a public space. Uh, I describe how Amma's followers were all men because she occupied a space which was a, uh, a prayer space reserved for men. Um, so her own sort of, you know, uh, unusual presence uh, of, of the unusual presence of a female uh, body, uh, you know, and I say this as sort of um, in quotation marks, it's in terms of how she's perceived, um, is 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 a is a function of her fakir body, and that fakir body needs to be um, publicly performed. And in in a very gendered way, right? So she's called Amma. Amma means mother. Uh, so there are ways in which, and this is this is this can be this concept of calling a spiritual figure as mother, Ma, Mata, Amma in South Asia is a, is, a, is a common feature. Uh, and these also women who uh, most of these women, fakir women, were women who had gone through reproductive cycles, had been mothers in their own lives, and then taken the path to fakiri. And so you know it's. in a a way, their path or their lines of fakiri were very distinct from uh, the men that I would meet at the fakir lodge, right? These were male-only communes who had different uh, trajectories of, of becoming spiritual masters, let's say. So here, spiritual mastery is also intricately tied to the experiences of being women or mothers, but at the same time, it was sometimes seen as a hindrance. So they were also trying to overcome their, their femininities and I shouldn't, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't, by overcoming, it's not a masculinization of the subject, but I, I talk about how they, 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 um, they describe their subjectivity as women, unlike other women. So it's a distinct kind of mode of femininity uh, that they want to sort of, you know, inhabit. Um, so I think th- those are the ways in which gender sort of really comes to, to the fore in, in, writing about the careers of women Fakirs um, or, you know, thinking about their healing repertoires, which they use as a way to establish their roles and reputations in the shrine field as persons who are close to the saint. Uh, the other being, of course, in the case of Zahida, there's a whole discussion about guys and disguise, which is this concept of base uh, in Urdu and Punjabi or Sindhi even. Um, and that is, that's a whole other, you know, uh, that's about bodiliness. Um, shall I say something on
1: on yours? Yeah, it was actually the, it was actually the next question I was going to ask was, um, about those sort of very material embodied ways that, uh, fakirs come not only to feel close to saints, but also sort of exhibit that closeness to others.
2: Yes, uh, so apart from, as I said, the mystical narrativization or these, you know, telling of stories in the field uh, by these women, um, the other aspect is a very bodily or a critical bodiliness, let's say. And Zahida's story, uh, which is uh, chapter three, yes, it's chapter three, uh, in Other Guises, Other Futures, evocatively captures the relationship between guys or disguise or pace to the question of saintly irritations. And what I'm trying to articulate in that chapter is how certain forms of bodyliness afford certain kinds of futures. Again, here, intimacy, bodyliness, and fakir futures become, you know, they're they're part of the same kind of, um, yeah, uh, schema. (laughs) Um, So the the idea is that being in the company of saints is not only a matter of affective uh, relations or emotional ties. I mean, that too, of course, but it also involves corporeal labor. Um, in fact, it hinges on this kind of critical bodilyness. And in order to perform as Fakirs, uh, persons like Zahida um, or women Fakirs especially must be readable as Fakirs uh, in the public eye. And this can be a question of what one wears, um, how one behaves or speaks, where one is spotted, who uh, one is in the company of. All of these can be signs of a Fakir's closeness to the saint or their intimacy. Um, to or, or the attachment to the shrine itself, right? So the, it's also about where you are physically, uh, and that's why Zahida would spend at least six months of the year at the shrine and not at home, or Amma would sit by the, cra- by the grave all day, um, or even male faqis, I mean, they had their spots where they would be seen, they had their the ways in which they would perform their fakir persona, so to speak. Um, But also, I think in the case of Zaida, I mean, I do write, uh, again, going back to gender, that women's careers are are doubly impeded. They're more difficult. uh, They're more arduous. They're somehow longer. They're more prone to failure. Um, So there's there's a very there's a there's an awareness that these these lines are very fragile, that these lines can be broken or ties can be cut. Uh, and Zaida's story uh, really exemplifies that uh, it's a story of crisis, because we meet her in a time of impending loss, um, or at least the chapter begins with that, um, or or at least it centres that that story. Um, so we we um, you know her altering re- relations with the saint again this question of temporality right uh, her her. Um, Her perceptions of her place at the shrine, her relations with family, all of these offer a way to understand how saintly relations uh, endure over time, how they take gendered forms, uh, what transpires when intimacy works in one's disfavor, or how, in the case of Zahida, she continues in face of failing relations. Um, But all of this is, is, um, I would say, inextricably tied to questions of uh Zahida's gender
1: um, now i in the final chapter before the coda, you speak about how this sort of all of these these life worlds that you describe, all of these historical and social processes that are part of these individuals' life worlds, because I don't think I mentioned it, but um, the chapters do tend to focus on a single fakir, you know, and their sort of tail, um, uh, uh, you know, looking very closely at their tail. And so... In the final chapter before the coda, you bring them all together to talk about this concept of worlding. And I'm hoping that you can describe for us, you know, what's your perspective on this concept of worlding? How how do you sort of arrive there through your, your thoughts about um, unstraight affordances and intimacy? Because it, it's a concept that sort of pops up here, you, you know, here and there within the literature. Um, and so does... Does your sort of thinking around that worlding diverge from um, other uh, concepts does it contribute you know can you give a, me a fuller sense of of you know that the way that you're thinking about that worlding um,
2: yeah so that's correct that every chapter is a um, centers on one fakir but also a site in the town so every chapter is both, about a place in the town and about is, is one life story. And of course, uh, there are other fakirs that get referenced, but it's basically there's a key protagonist to every chapter. And the last chapter, the fifth ethnographic chapter, um, Unworlding Fakirs, Fairies and the Dead, uh, is about two fakirs who are contesting place in a single graveyard. It's a it's a, a woman fakir and a and male fakir who share space and, of course, cannot um, get along, uh, but also they have very uh, specific visions of the um, of the place itself. They have very specific narrations, uh, and they have very specific ideas of the future of the graveyard and their future in it, uh, within the graves. Um, and i I was really sort of startled, of course, by this whole this idea of what does it mean to live among the dead, right? But mm-hmm. And I, I had a good relation with both Fukis and I spent quite a bit of time. And of course, I think in, since my earliest meetings with them, I realized that they were living not just with the dead, but there were other creatures and figures um, that I wasn't aware of, but they would always cite them. They were always referenced in conversations, whether they were fairies, they were um, spirits from another world, they were demons, they were Hindu deities, they were flying horses, and they were messiahs and you know, even Jesus is mentioned and Christian elements and all that. And this we have to understand. I mean, we've talked about earlier how seven is this kind of multiply haunted, deeply sacred, densely sacred place. Um, so there are all these religious traditions that meet here. And this is an ancient place. It's um, So demons and all of that, They, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're locals, let's say, to the landscape of these stories. Um and I think that, that what that chapter allows us to to think about is how through these Fakir uh, narratives and narrativizations of place, we also get a sense of these subliminal histories. Uh, and this is also the the ways in which I think about how a certain kind of unstraightness coheres in an Islamic republic, right? So governance, of course, takes place and the state is interested in, in straightening uh, and disciplining you know radical life worlds of shrines, and there's there's a lot that's like that that's happening at at Seven as well. But the moment you move away from the center of the action and you know you think about this as a peripheral uh graveyard in the town, you realize that all those histories are really active and they really play a role in the ways in which Seven is experienced and imagined uh beyond the present moment. So this multiple presence of histories uh, through the narrativization of these fakirs allow us to think about um, this kind of worlding with saints, which is your question. I'm getting, getting to this idea, but the notion of worlding with saints is somehow likely passing the book. Right. But it sort of here, I try to sort of make it a little more concrete. And so one of the things that uh, is happening is that um what I identify as worlding with saints is entangled with ongoing processes of unworlding. Fakirs, after all, figures of recluse. They're taking, I mean, in the, in the um, most commonly they're understood as people who are um, sort of, uh, renunce, you know, are renouncing the world. So just as unworldly fakirs uh, turn perceptive with the, in their relations with saintly beings, which what I'm ra- writing about, saints are also sort of, you know, through fakir acts and performances, finding their bearings in the world. So there is a kind of reciprocity, the the relation, is this kind of mutual forces. And through this, there's a certain kind, uh, you know, I think of layered ecologies of time and space that become present through these relations. As these relationships endure over time, as these thrive, um, these layered ecologies, uh, you know, sort of come to the surface and they cohere, a a world coheres, I think. Uh, And this is what I mean by by worlding with saints. And in, in terms of, I think, so there is there is a kind of, and these are not just relations between now uh, saints and fakirs, it's more multinodal because there are other human, more than human fig- figures and forces, they are mythical beings and spiritual figures across religious traditions. They can be Shi'i, Hindu, Sufi, whatever. So it becomes this kind of plural um, sort of coming together of a world. Um, and I think the ways in which it speaks to the literature of worlding again is through ideas of, of, worlding that are not necessarily secular. Um, that these are plural religious worlds um, that allow for, you know, that's, that's there in the concept itself, worlding with saints. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a way to think about, I think what my earlier interest or the, let's say the initial uh, primary interest was to think about worlding with saints as a, um, as a response to the common perception that Fakir lives about unworlding. And I'm thinking about how through this, even through unworlding, Fakirs gain a consciousness of the world. As you know, in the book, intimacy is tied with forms of knowing. It's a felt mode of knowing. It can be imprecise. It can be indistinct. It's a slow mode of revelation, but it's a form of knowing. It's a form of you know understanding the world. Um, so I'm interested in how Fakirs make worlds out of their relations with the saintly, uh, rather than how they um, how they unworld. <laughs> um, so that's that's what's happening in that chapter, I guess.
1: <laughs> okay, great. Um, and so I would assume that you know this idea of of worlding or creating worlds. It's not. It's inherent within that those worlds is itself the multiplicity and the, because I I, I don't want one to think that um, to create a world means to create coherency, right? To create those, those sort of straight lines once again, but to allow for a multiplicity to exist within a sort of a whole or within several holes, because the concept of the world sort of does denote a sort of a unit, some sort of unity or some sort of, um, uh, singularization, but that one that allows for a multiplicity to continue to exist.
2: Yeah, you're definitely right. And I think in the chapter, um, I, I think maybe I didn't describe it as, as well as I tried to do it in the chapter, where I do think about how all these multiple worlds don't necessarily cohere or make sense, right? And they also they also vary in the narrations of the same fakir, or two fakirs do not agree also, right? And that, that's why there's contestation. Um, and I say that it's a kind of a, a what coheres is is unstraightness uh, again, right? Is this kind of you know, um, yeah, through these subliminal figures, a certain kind of unstraightness coheres in that world. Um, so, so you're right. I, I would totally agree with that. But it's also about you know, it's so thinking about not just you know questions of wholeness or unity. It's also where intimacy is about non sovereignty in some ways, right? This, um, you know, I was, I was reminded of. Um, uh, because you had, I think, you had also uh, mentioned this question that you were interested in talking about it. I, you know, Billy Ray Belcourt has this uh, lovely line: uh, "Love is the clumsy name we give to a body spilling outside of itself, a body failing to live up to the promise of self-sovereignty." It's a very Berlantian take uh, on love, and so, so in, in in a very similar vein, I think of intimacy, or at least in the ways in which I've encountered it for key lives. It's, it's always about being entangled with more than living beings, it's about being tied up in saintly relations and messy relations. It's, being about, it's about being physically bonded to saints' shrines and their tombs. And so the last chapter really sort of gives us a sense of this, you know, of intimacy as this uh, non-sovereign, but also as a bigger than oneself kind of, a, you know, a, a relation that is bigger than just between two people. It's multinodal. It's uh, across time and space in this case, um, and it's about uh, historical knowing, right? So it's not just about, and this is this idea that um, straightness in this book is also about uh, people's um, ability to remain a slant to the contemporary through their relations with a religious object or um, a figure of sacred value.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. So just, you know, a couple of... Um... You know, you know, perhaps silly questions or, or uh, less thoughtful questions to end us on. So, what's your favorite part of the book?
2: That's a hard one to answer. Um, <laughs> I mean, the bits and pieces I like about the book. I, uh, you know, I, I like the. I'm quite fond of the the um, the not the anecdote, but the description of the the. The photographs in the introduction, you know, where I'm pictured with the saint, because I think it it it's it's both fun and uh, it allows a sort of conceptual um, introduction. Um, Zahida, I'm I'm very partial to because you know Zahida is someone who's driven this work. Um, she's the first, you know, woman I'd spoken to at the shrine, and she was a fakir, and that's how you know the whole project came about. And her story is deeply affective for me because I found her, you know, I left her in a in a time of this kind of impending loss and sort of, so it really moves me when I read her story. But I think if I, in a very selfish note, uh, I would say The Coda is my favorite chapter. Possibly because I think it... Um, Possibly because I think it really uh, describes the politics of the book. Um, it underlines uh, all that I'm trying to do in a way—the um, broader politics of it. Right? What what this book is beyond a book about shrines, or beyond a book about a Sufi context, or or beyond Pakistan. Um, I wrote it as with the hope that this would be a teachable text. That's a text that. People who are interested in this companionship between categories queer and religion, or their historical disinclination, would actually read it. And um, so it's a text. I know that it's, it's a bit dense, but I, it's it's really a text that allows you to zoom out of the book and think about, uh, in a way, why why this book exists. Uh, you know. So I don't know how 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 successful. Uh, that chapter is, but yeah, it's, it's more
1: personal to me. In that sense. Okay. Um, and is there anyone who you think should read the book, but probably won't Absolutely. speaking of it being <laughs> a teachable book? <laughs> <of> what? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, I mean, I think I'd go back to this idea, right? The challenge of getting readers from, um, from, different sides of the academy which usually don't read across or don't read each other's work. And so I I have a feeling that a lot of people who work on South Asia and and on Islam or at least Sufism will sort of pick it up. Whether they like it or not or is another story, whether they find it too queer or uh, those are other Yeah, that I cannot say. But I I would really I, I really hope that people who usually read on queer stuff and are not used to reading uh, on Pakistan or Islam would pick this book up. I mean, I know that the ethnographic chapters are very particular and they go, you know, there's a lot of ethnographic detail that could be overbearing or you know, if not interested in those questions, uh, it may not, not really, you know, be up your alley. But the coda and the, the introduction are certainly written with the hope that queer scholars or scholars who work on queer stuff will read and will find some access um, and I think that uh, publishing with Duke also helps that, um, yeah, that project, let's say. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. I can't say who will, who's not likely to read it. Um, but it's a clever question. It's a clever question and it's a hard one to
1: answer. Yeah. You know, we certainly write our texts with a certain audience in mind and, you know, some of them are more likely to actually become our audiences, some of them are more of that sort of hopeful or uh, 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 the, you know, hopeful audiences that may not become them, so In a way, you you
2: are that imagined audience, right? I mean, you're not not someone who would read on um, I mean, you're not, of course, reading on anthropology of Islam or something I mean, this is what my guess or my informed guess is Um,
1: and sort of, I would agree that like, I am in a way that imagined audience. The difference, however, is that, um, the, the thing that makes me a bit different from other, you know, scholars like me is that I'm also a Middle East studies person, right? So there is, there is still that question. You know, I do work with material sometimes around questions of Islam, um, uh, particularly within the Levant, not so much within South Asia and stuff. But so I'm not completely uninformed in those topics. Whereas others, you know, other queer anthropologists who might really benefit from um, reading uh, your take about intimacy and queerness in a in a much broader way, um, might not also have the sort of Middle East slash Islam. Um, You know, interest or or sort of reading adjacent, perhaps like I don't really deal with questions of religion, but in a broader teaching agenda, you know, like I'm teaching a class on, you know, Middle East anthropology in the coming year. And inevitably, I have to sort of raise, you know, a broader set of questions. Anyway, that's a long-winded way to say that, like, yeah, I would certainly see myself as part of your imagined audience, someone who sort of doesn't really know about questions of of the anthropology of religion, but isn't completely um, uh, far from it. Sure.
2: No, it certainly is the ambition of the book in a way that it's not just seen as a South Asia studies book, that's not just seen as a anthropology of Islam book. In fact, I think the conversations that I'm, um, seating, sort of so situating the book in a not anthropology of Islam conversations. I think um, there's some way. I think I keep thinking that it sits in this kind of capacious space of mutual disinclination, right? Like you just have this gap, and then you say, okay, let's let's try to tie these um, conversations. But I, yeah, I hope it'll it'll reach a broader audience. Let's see, fingers crossed.
1: In, I mean, in my reading of it, what I found you're right. Like where I see the book sitting, like where I see the intervention of the book in terms of complicating questions, it is within those um, topics around queerness and intimacy, right? Like that's really where you're bringing in to me, the provocations, the, at least the very little knowledge that I have of the anthropology of Islam is that in some ways you're sort of a much of the literature you're bringing in are already questions that are settled, right? You're like, you said, like you said earlier, Intimacy is not necessarily a novel frame to um, relationships between fuckers and saints within Sufism, right? Like, whereas the the provocations that you are bringing up a lot are more related to that question of how do we think through queerness in different kinds of worlds? Um, how do we think through the relationship of queerness and religion without doing that whole queering religion thing like uh, um. And so yes, to me, if if I were to sort of place where the provocations of the text lie, it's much more in the queer, you know, anthropology of intimacy um, threads than the uh, anthropology of religion stuff. And um, and so when I think about this as a potential teaching text, certainly my um, like when I think about how this text might sit within a course that I might design. Um, I think it would be raising questions of uh, queer anthropology and how to use queer as a category um, in different, you know, kinds of worlds. Like to me, that, to me, I would teach it as a provocation to queerness, as opposed to a provocation to um, Islam or the Middle East as a category. Oh,
2: yeah, that makes me happy. <laughs> Well, that's also. I mean, that's also why I was saying that the coda uh, sort of, you know, is is trying to do that in a way. Of course, it's about the coda um is trying to also think about the companionship between religion and queerness because that's really the two things that I really deal with in the book for my for my you know own project. But you're right. The provocations are, uh yeah, uh, towards queerness and and sort of to think about queerness in this kind of yeah through through uh, other worlds. Um, and, and mostly is a non-metropolitan, more than secular uh, space, which the the site of Seven provides.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I can understand how you're you're sort of thinking about that, like the readership, the queer readership, who might not have an interest in religion, right? Or and who might also be a bit hostile toward. Um, religion and sexuality, right? And see religion as a normalizing force and hopefully to approach the text, um, through a lens where it's not an automatic uh, relationship of antagonism, nor of normalization versus non-normalization, uh, or normativity, um, but rather a much more complicated, uh, just a much more complicated um, relationship between religion and in this case, particularly Islam um, and queerness and able to think, to sort of, you know, leave any potential bias toward religion more broadly and sexuality and read them through these, um, these unstraight affordances. Yeah. That's the hope. (laughs) Which, which, which was a concept I, um, I found super interesting, and then and also really focused at grasping throughout the text in sort of very concrete ways, which I did grasp. Um, uh, trying to understand what those unstraight affordances looked like and and how they, you know, were produced. Um, but I do think in in having this conversation with you, uh, that in retrospect, um, perhaps I tried to sort of, perhaps I was too attached to that very simple distinction of normative versus non-normative and in talking to you didn't quite grasp the complexity of the sort of overlapping dynamic of that and that we can't just sort of judge one thing to be normative and one thing to be non-normative um and so if if i ever if i ever you know teach or read the book again it's certainly going to shift how i see um, how I read your discussions around the role of power and the state in producing these lives.
2: This is super interesting. And I'm so glad that you've engaged with the book so thoroughly and, and really, um, I mean, it, it's, it's, um, it's really a pleasure to be able to, you know, to think through and think with someone else. And as you also said at the beginning of the conversation, that it's a way of yeah thinking in company and, um, it's this kind of, you know, your reactions also allow me to think about how, uh, or some of the ways in which the book can be received or um, will be read. I mean, it's really new, so I'm very curious uh, about how it lands on the other side. I mean, I always say that writing is just an overture, right? It's a, it can even be a flirtation. It's something that we, it's a move we make without knowing how it will land and. So having you know this conversation with you is uh, gives me a sense of how it could land, uh, and yeah, and it's it's been very very inspiring.
1: Yeah. Well, keep in mind that um, as you know, I've always been a big fan of your writing and your ability to sort of very deftly. Um, you know write intimate life worlds with care um, and you and I share a vocabulary and so I'm often you know in reading this book and reading other pieces of yours am inspired by the vocabularies you use to talk about intimacy and you know so um, that's very kind Matthew thank you I'm I'm certainly a, a, you know a fan of <laughs> of it um, oh god thank you because of those, because of those over, overlapping interests and oh and, sh- and shared interests and shared topics, um, yeah. So hopefully, all readers will be like me, although, <laughs> although <laughs> inevitably they won't.
2: I really hope all readers are like you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Um, anyway, it's been a real pleasure talking um, today, Pleasure's and um, bad, Matthew. That really yeah. I learned a lot. I did okay. too, and
2: this has been. Really both flattering and it's been an honor uh, and a pleasure, of course,
1: to speak to you.
0: plus.